Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Tonight on The Readout. Brad, there was no document. That was a massive amount of papers and everything else talking about Iran and other things. Oh, yes, there was a document according to that superseding indictment and special counsel Jack Smith has it. Plus, the boss wants the server deleted. The alleged words of a Trump employee who is now the third defendant in the classified documents case, leading to additional obstruction counts against the former president. And wouldn't it just be refreshing if Ron DeSantis could just admit that teaching the benefits of slavery is a mistake that needs to be corrected? Well, instead, he's doubling and tripling down on it and blaming Vice President Harris for the controversy. I'm Michael Steele, in for Joy Reid, and we begin tonight with what has become abundantly clear. Donald Trump has met his match with special counsel Jack Smith. Unlike Trump, who always relies on insults, conspiracy theories, and alternative facts, Smith is putting in the hours and doing the hard work to uncover actual facts and evidence. And last night, that due diligence was on display when the special counsel's office issued a superseding indictment in the classified documents case. It added three new charges against Trump, one count of willful retention of national defense information and two additional counts of obstruction. It also named a new defendant, Carlos de Oliveira, a property manager at Mar-a-Lago. De Oliveira allegedly helped Trump's longtime valet and co-defendant, Waltine Nada, move boxes, the boxes containing classified documents, out of a storage room. He also allegedly spoke with Trump employee four, which we now know to be Yusuf Tavares, the the director of IT at Mar-a-Lago, about trying to delete the security camera footage showing the boxes being moved. We'll get back to that in just a little bit. But I want to focus first on something else we learned from the superseding indictment about the top secret Iran memo that Trump has heard on tape showing off during a July 21st meeting at his New Jersey golf club. Except it is like highly confidential yeah. <laughs> secret. This is secret information. But look, look at this. And you know, he said he wanted to attack Iran and what? These are the papers. This was done by the military, given to me. Uh, I think we can probably, right? We'll we'll have to see. Yeah, we'll have to try to figure out a... a, See, as president, I could have declassified it. Now I can't, you know, but this is... Yeah, now now we have a problem. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's so cool. Not only does Trump confirm in that audio tape that he did not actually declassify the document like he has repeatedly claimed he did, but he also confirmed that no one in that room had security clearance. Of course, Trump has denied that he actually showed off any top secret memo. That wasn't a document, Brett. 
there was no document. That was a massive amount of papers and everything else talking about Iran and other things. And it may have been held up or may not, but that was not a document. I didn't have a document per se. There was nothing to declassify. These were newspaper stories, magazine stories, and articles. And he even had his lawyers go on TV to call it all a lie. All we know is that in the indictment itself, there was no Iran documents named as part of it. Just want the American public to realize that that document that they claim he had was not part of the indictment. It doesn't make sense because it's a lie. It's a ruse. But like I said earlier, unlike Trump, Jack Smith doesn't seem to deal in alternative facts. He comes bearing the receipts and has now included that very document that Trump and his minions claim doesn't exist to the uh, to include it in the superseding indictment. As you can see, it indicates that they have actually had the document in question since January 17, 2022, the same date the very first 15 boxes of documents were delivered from Mar-a-Lago to the National Archives. We learned something else last night in yet another filing from the special counsel, and it amplifies Trump's pure brazenness as part of the ongoing discussions with Trump's legal team over the protective order for the documents. Trump not only wants to be able to discuss classified discovery with his counsel outside of a classified location, but he wants to be able to do so at Mar-a-Lago or possibly Bedminster. And no, I'm not making that up. The special counsel writes, quote, there is no basis for the defendant's request that he be given the extraordinary authority to discuss classified information at his residence. And it is particularly striking that he seeks permission to do so in the very location at which he is charged with willfully retaining the documents charged in this case. The government is not aware of any case in which a defendant has been permitted to discuss classified information in a private residence, and such exceptional treatment would not be consistent with the law. Joining me now is Mary McCord, former acting assistant attorney general for national security and co-host of the pod, of the prosecuting Donald Trump podcast, Frank Flaguzzi, former assistant FBI director for counterintelligence, and Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney and University of Michigan law professor. I am lawyered up, folks, and so I am ready for this one because I'll start with you, Mary. It is very intriguing to me how how Jack Smith has developed this narrative. And, and people were impressed uh, when the first set of indictments come out, came out. And now we have this. And we're still sitting there in anticipation, wondering and waiting what will be next. Jack Smith would not be doing it this way, number one, but certainly not allowing, not having allowed a grand jury to come and meet um, and, and include any of these charges if he didn't have the goods. Is that how you're looking at this or what should we be taking away from this new development? Well, I think with respect to the new document that's been charged, document that's the 32nd count, and that is the document that it's not named as an Iran document in the superseding indictment, but it is reflected uh, in the narrative that the document that's uh, that's charged in count 32 is the document that uh, Mr. Trump was showing to these people who had no authority to be viewing it or seeing it at Bedminster in July of 2021. And so it's, it's, it's unclear if at the time of the first indictment, they 
had actually isolated that document and determined that it was the the one, even though it was in their possession. There were many, many hundreds, mm-hmm. of course, of documents. So uh, it could be that they decided at that time not to not to um, include it as a separate charge. Maybe it was so sensitive that they were nervous about including it as a separate charge. But certainly now they have located it. They have determined whether by witnesses or some other way that that in fact is the one. That's the part that we are still Sorry. missing, right. right? You know, how do we know for sure it's the one as opposed to this looks like it might be the one. But that's where I think you're right. Jack Smith is not going to add this as a count and say it was the document if he can't substantiate that at trial. Frank, one, one of the interesting aspects of this for me is the introduction of this new figure in all of this, uh, uh, Mr. uh who um, in reading through the transcript at once seems hesitant, um, at other times compliant. How do you read his role in this, particularly given, and when you look at the indictment, it says, and I, I want to read this to you, uh, when they talk about his loyalty, there, there's some concern about whether or not he was going to be loyal enough. Just over two weeks after the FBI discovered classified documents in the storage room in Trump's office on August 26, 2022, Nada called Trump employee five and said words to the effect of, someone just wants to make sure Carlos is good. In response, Trump employee five told Nada that the D. Oliveira was loyal and that D. Oliveira would not do anything to affect his relationship with Trump. That, to me, says a lot, um, not just so much about whether or not D. Oliveira was in the game the way they thought he was, but there was some interesting concern about whether or not Trump could manipulate or use this guy to get his ends uh, met in regards to uh, these documents. How do you read his role here? The Oliveira played a significant role. He's a player here, and he would not have been charged like this if, if he wasn't significant to the conspiracy. Remember, conspiracies involve two or more people, and we've certainly got that here. And I can't help but but reminisce back to reading La Cosa Nostra affidavits and, and transcripts <laughs> of wiretaps for Italian organized crime, where where the mobsters will say, uh, is he OK? Is he is he one of ours? Yeah, he's one of ours. He's good. This is exactly like that. And that's what we hear about D. Oliveira. Remember, we've got a description in the superseding indictment of literally him and Nada meeting in bushes, you know, multiple meetings going into the far periphery of Mar-a-Lago property, even to adjacent property and having meetings in the bushes. He knows exactly what he's doing is wrong. He's keeping a secret about Nada traveling with regard to taking care of the server. He's the one interacting with the IT guy saying, you know, the boss wants this done. He talks to Nauda about it. They, they're conferring about it. A major player who it appears they could not flip, at least not yet, at least not fully. And that's why we're seeing him charged. And he's going to have to make a decision here. He's got a lawyer that appears to be paid for, again, a mobster type thing, paid for by the boss. Um, he's going to go down with the boss if the three, yeah. if these three guys show up in court and go to trial together. Someone's going down, and they're all going to go down unless there's a severance or they decide to get separate lawyers. The the, the separate lawyers piece, uh, Barbara, to me is a fast another fascinating aspect of this because. They don't have separate lawyers. Trump is paying for the lawyers that these gentlemen are currently using. How does that shape 
the way Jack Smith moves forward with his prosecution? And does he get to a point where he goes to the court and says, Your Honor, this, we got to get something else going on here because this is not going to work with uh, the way this evidence is, is being presented and, and I have these two individuals represented by the same lawyers when the facts may show they have different roles that, you know, may be beneficial if they're separated versus being in the same pool. Prosecutors usually show a lot of respect and deference to a, a client in their choice of a lawyer, and they don't want to get between that relationship between lawyer and client. But uh, as we saw with Cassidy Hutchinson, sometimes lawyers are not putting their client first. Their ethical duty is to their client, not to the person who is paying them. Uh, but we know from the, the testimony of Cassidy Hutchinson that that's not the way it always works. One option that prosecutors have is there is a court rule that allows them to raise with the court concerns that a lawyer might have a conflict of interest in a case in representing a client. If, if so, it's not the prosecutor's job to delve into that, but to just raise it with the court. And then the judge can have a hearing where they actually bring the client in and ask the client under oath if they've been satisfied with their legal representation and that they understand that there is this potential conflict of interest. So that is one way that there can be a protection here if somebody is being pressured. But, you know, I don't know how many clients would show up in that situation and say, yeah, I'm being pressured. Not too many would probably have the courage to come clean at that point, and especially uh, someone like Nada or De Oliveira, who have already sort of uh, staked their uh, loyalty with Donald Trump. Mary, I, w I want to sort of uh, connect what both Frank and Barbara have said so far to the to the two locations that we now find ourselves looking at um, the jurisdictions of Jersey and Bedminster and Florida and Mar-a-Lago. Uh, speak to how that now seems to work actually in the prosecution's favor, uh, given the way these facts seem seemingly have unfolded. Well, it establishes now that the, that this document has been charged a couple of things. It establishes, again, as we talked, that Jack Smith must have the proof that it was a document in Bedminster. That means that document not only went from the White House to Mar-a-Lago, and it shouldn't have, it went from Mar-a-Lago to Bedminster, and it shouldn't have, traveling on some sort of unsecure transportation that it shouldn't have. And then it went back to Mar-a-Logo, right. where it shouldn't have. And so, you know, there had been some concerns about would there be objections to the government being able to introduce evidence into evidence at trial that dialogue up at Benminster where Trump is referring to a document, the dialogue you played at the top of the show, or would that be uh, ruled by the court to be more prejudicial than probative since the document was not the basis for a charge? Well, guess what? The document is now a basis for a charge. So I think any argument that that uh, audio shouldn't be admissible is is going to fail. Um, or if it doesn't fail, you know, if there are motion, uh, successful motions to suppress, those are actually things a government can appeal. It, that that part of it to me, I could just you know hear Trump thinking that you know it, he's figured it all out, uh, and just by just by transportation, right? Right. He, he creates the nexus that now brings it all together, uh, which which Frank uh, begs the question for me: uh, What is Trump thinking at this point in in light of all of these uh, uh, you know charges that are coming forth, with more potentially coming? I want you to listen to a Trump on Real America Voice today where he, he sort of shared his views, not only about running for president uh, with these charges, but conviction potentially as well. Let's take a listen. If, if going forward, right, 
you get these indictments, there ends up, you got a jury in D.C., you get convicted and sentenced. Does that stop your campaign for president, if you're sentenced? Uh, not, not at all. Uh, there's nothing in the Constitution to say that it could, and not at all. And uh, even the radical left crazies are saying, no, that wouldn't stop. Uh, and it wouldn't stop me either. Frank, just dispatch with that very quickly, if you would. <laughs> yeah, look, I, what we see happening here is you're moving forward a strategy, a legal strategy that's going to be more about delaying for a campaign and for an eventual win that Trump wants rather than a solid legal strategy. We're seeing that already in motions. Uh, he's thinking delay, 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 fundraise, fundraise, use this to my benefit and push it out. We're going to continue to see that for the upcoming months. My distinguished panel will stay with me because we can't forget about Trump's next expected indictment, this time for his role in the events of January 6th. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Amid all the news of the additional charges against Donald Trump in the classified documents case, let's not forget that any day now, Trump is also expecting to be indicted again, this time for his attempt to overturn the 2020 election. Charges against the former president would seem to be imminent. Trump's legal team met with prosecutors from the special counsel's office yesterday, which is typically the last chance for lawyers to convince prosecutors not to bring charges and the last step before an indictment is handed down. Back with me are Mary McCord, Frank Flaguzzi, and Barbara McQuaid. So, Barbara, I, I want to start with you on this one, because the, the, this next case, which is, I think, the seminal one, this is the thing that really kind of pulls for me a lot of this together. Um, how do you see, particularly given uh, the way the prosecution has set up the documents case, what do you anticipate with this January 6th case and how uh, Jack Smith is going to lay his cards out on this one? Well, it sounds like, Michael, from some of the reporting that there are still a few loose ends. I know some people, I think, thought that when the, the Trump target letter came out and he got that Thursday deadline, that that meant, well, that's it. But there's still a few things that have to occur. For example, this meeting with defense counsel, I think, is something that you could have anticipated. There's been reporting that Bernard Carrick has just produced a lot of documents and wants to, and they want to interview him in August, and that there are two fake electors who've been subpoenaed to appear before the grand jury. It seems most likely to me that they would want to complete that work before they actually file the indictment. 
And so I could see it taking a couple more weeks before we actually see that indictment filed early to mid-August. Now, that raises the question you just raised, where does that fit in a trial with the Mar-a-Lago case? I would imagine that it would probably get a trial date that sometime after that. But here's an interesting dynamic. If that superseding indictment that was filed yesterday ends up pushing the Mar-a-Lago indictment, the trial date, down the road a few months, there is a possibility that Jack Smith could argue that that January 6th trial ought to wedge in there in between. Mm-hmm. And that really interesting because, as you say, I think that's the big one. And if you could have that one tried and completed before the November election, I think that would be in the best interest of the public so that they could have access to that information when they make a decision about the election. That, that, that's actually a pretty interesting strategy, uh, particularly when you, you consider all of the plays involved. I want to put up for folks to see the, this, the sort of wall of shame of the January 6th participants. So we get a sense of exactly the players, uh, Mary, that, we, that are it, you know, in the mix here. And the, I think the most intriguing one in the mix is the former chief of staff, Mark Meadows. Uh, I want to play real quick for you just a very quick uh, little verbiage from, from Mr. Meadows uh, on his way uh, into an office building recently. You know, I don't talk about anything J6 related. <laughs> That's all I got to say. I don't talk about anything J6 related. So I, I've heard in, and there's been reporting that when someone like Mark Meadows is taking that posture, that potentially could mean something relative to how the conversations he's having with the with the special uh, prosecutor. What, what, what's your take on this sort of stoniness of, of Mark Meadows when you consider some of the other players who are a little bit more vocal about uh, what they're doing here? Well, I think I think that's a completely natural reading that potentially he's cooperating with the special counsel's office. And so he's been instructed to keep his mouth shut and it's in his interest to keep his mouth shut. I would say I also also think it could be consistent with him expecting he's going to be charged and his attorney saying, keep your mouth shut. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I, I think a lot of us have speculated about, you know, how valuable he might be to a prosecution, unlike people like Rudy Giuliani, who I think are utterly incredible, meaning sponsoring a witness like that in front of the jury is really uh, challenging because he is such a liar. Uh, Mark Meadows has a little bit more gravitas than that, mm-hmm. and it could be somebody that the that the prosecution could feel comfortable putting on the stand if they if they satisfied themselves that he's telling the truth. But it could be he's going to be on the other side of the V. Yeah, I, I think that's that's the intriguing part for me, Frank, is is how someone like Meadows uh, really could be in in a number of spots in this in this uh, scenario. Uh, and then you layer on top of that what's happening down in Georgia now over the you know, the last couple of days, you know, uh, they started putting up barricades around the courthouse again, signaling what we don't know. But. How does this Georgia case, which is also not a lot of conversation about it recently because of the activity of the, of the special counsel, uh, Jack Smith, but that's also a, a potential uh, knock upside the head for Trump when that one lands in the, con- in the midst of all these other trials. How do you read that potential case uh, flowing in the midst of uh, both the documents case and January 6th? You know, it's interesting, Michael, because when you talk to people who live abroad, they look at, at this mess and they go, boy, it seems really your legal system seems very chaotic. There's no centrality to it. You've got each state doing their own thing. You've got the feds in different districts and jurisdictions. And 
It turns out there's a beauty to this system because the states, as, as you know, the state charges cannot be pardoned by a president. So right. all eyes really need to be on Fulton County. There's a lot of moving parts there because you've got this whole issue of Meadows that straddles. Me Meadows is key because he straddles both two components of the Jan 6 case and the Fulton And of course, the, he's immersed in the Fulton County case, which is the alternate slate of electors, efforts to overturn a, a lawful election, but also the security breach on January 6th at the Capitol. Meadows is in the room. He knows what's going on, and he straddles both of those issues for Smith. With regard to Fulton County, there are security concerns with witness protections, protecting the courthouse, protecting prosecutors, protecting Fonnie Willis. And she's already alerted law enforcement well ahead of time that they see this coming. Start preparing. And I know that the federal agencies are offering help to the county sheriff and the county police and the city police and the Georgia State Patrol. So we're about to go through, as I look at this from law enforcement lens, the nation and the nation's law enforcement, with all of this on the table, is about to go through a kind of stress test, whether they can get out in front of something bad happening, find that lone actor, respond to what Trump and others around him are maybe doing to instigate potential violence. We're going to go through a stress test and law enforcement has to get it right every single day. Barbara, we've got about a minute left and I, I want to get your thoughts on an aspect of this uh, of all of these cases, all of them, all of the prosecutions from the state to the feds that I, I think could be interesting to watch. Trump's reaction, his insistence that he speak to these matters, that he calls out individuals calling the special prosecutor name. I can only imagine what he'll start in on uh, the you know, prosecutor in, in Georgia. How should the courts be handling Donald Trump and his, his outbursts uh, on social media and in public? Well, it's tricky when you have someone who's running for president because they certainly have a First Amendment right to speak political speech and uh, defend themselves. But I think that the judges really should be more proactive here. I can't believe the judge has allowed Donald Trump to already say the things he has said about Jack Smith in light of the climate that we live in. We know that after the Mar-a-Lago search, for example, a man in Cincinnati stormed the FBI office in his town and ended up killed in a standoff. And so it's very dangerous to allow Trump to go after the prosecutors by name, uh, I think he can defend himself. But if I were that judge, I would be entering a, a protective order uh, to talk about lowering the temperature on the rhetoric. Mary McCord, Frank Faguzzi, and Barbara McQuaid, thank you. Thank you very much. Coming up, growing backlash to Florida's new curriculum teaching about the benefits of being a slave, now coming from black Republicans in Congress. Hmm, we'll be right back. Laptops on, TVs streaming, game console consoling, smart thermostat set for cuddle time, doorbell camera, whoa, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Hi everyone, it's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, 
My guests and I break down what's next, why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Backlash continues over Florida's new public school standards that require instructors to teach students that enslaved people develop skills which could be applied for their personal benefit. Hmm. This time, the rebuke comes from two of the very few black Republicans in Congress. Congressman Byron Donalds called on Florida to correct his state's black history standards, while Tim Scott of South Carolina, the only black uh, Republican senator, said to a reporter, quote, there is no silver lining in slavery. What slavery was really about was separating families, about mutilating humans, and even raping their wives. It was just devastating. He called on Florida, and especially those running for president, <coughs> Ron DeSantis, uh, to again clarify their positions. Meanwhile, Vice President Kamala Harris, who DeSantis keeps attacking in this black history feud, says the new guidelines are about a larger agenda. I do believe that we are witnessing a national agenda that is about a full-on attack against hard-won, hard-fought freedoms and rights. Consider uh, this issue and then think about what is happening around a full-on attack on the right and the freedom to vote. Joining me now is Dean Abadala, MSNBC columnist and host of The Dean Abadala Show on Sirius XM, and Brendan Buck, MSNBC political analyst and former aide to speakers John Boehner and Paul Ryan. Gentlemen, welcome to you both. My buddy Brendan, I'm going to start with you on this one because this, this one cuts a little bit close to home for us. Um, we can talk about Kamala Harris all day long and make it about her, but it really isn't. Um, and I want to play for you um, real quick uh, Ron DeSantis' response uh, to Byron, McDon uh, Byron Donald's uh, asking him to fix this. At the end of the day, you got to choose. Are you going to side with Kamala Harris? Uh, in liberal media outlets? Are you going to side with the state of Florida? And I think it's very clear that these guys did a good job on those standards. It wasn't anything that uh, was politically uh, motivated. Uh, these are serious scholars. So the question is, why, why can't he recognize in this moment that he's in the wrong lane on this? The idea that slavery somehow benefited black people and then to have two black members of Congress from his party say to him, I think as politely as they as they could, because I certainly wouldn't have been as polite as they were in, in reprimanding him on this, that he still doesn't seem to get what they're saying and why he's tone deaf on this. Not asking you to get in his head, but the politics of this, I would think you would shift very quickly. Oh, my bad. <laughs> But he's not doing that. What, what do you think is going on here? Because he's incredibly stubborn. I mean, I think that pretty much is, is what the root of, of all of this. Look, we're on day six or seven of Ron DeSantis having to, in some ways, look like he's defending slavery. I mean, this is supposed to be a, a campaign reset. This is not hard. This, this should have been flushed down the toilet in a, in a single day. Um, I don't think that Ron DeSantis actually thinks there were upsides to slavery. But I think he is so stubborn and unwilling to admit error at any point that he, he can't help himself but to, to engage in a fight. Just say slavery was abhorrent. There, are, there were no upsides. 
these guys drew up these standards. They missed on this one. We're going to cut that out. And the story goes away. Instead, we're, the week that he's supposed to be resetting, he continually looks like he's defending the situation. It's, it's incredibly uh, just it's, you know, you and I worked in politics for a long time. I cannot understand the thinking, uh, the, the, the political strategy behind this, but I, I think it just comes down to his personality. Dean, I mean, that, and that's the point. I mean, I get the personality in politics. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. Brendan and I have dealt with some personalities in politics, particularly on the Republican side, and that's all good. I mean, you know how to manage that. But then the way, what I find troubling is to sort of, you know, switch this over and try to make it about Kamala Harris, the vice president, mm -hmm. who I think rightly called it out. What what do you think of that part of the strategy? I mean, how do you think the public sees that more importantly, uh, trying to shift this back to her and making this somehow that, you know, she is defending the indefensible? Well, Michael, first of all, when I, when Republicans are fighting each other, it brings me an inappropriate amount of joy. So can we just start from that <laughs> point right there? Because You're easy to please, Tim. What can I say, not, right? I'm not a, like, <laughs> second of all, let's look, let's take a step back here, guys, because you're looking at this like, well, Ron DeSantis is in the wrong. But I will tell you this, overwhelmingly, Republicans support critical race theory bans, which is banning teaching black achievement and the suffering of black people at the hands of white people through time. Secondly, polls show that a majority of Republicans now think they are the biggest victims of discrimination more than black people. And I think this is all consistent with that. And other polling shows Republicans are less supportive now of teaching any black history at all. So I actually think you guys were in the right because you're listening, you're thinking like a Democrat. I'm so happy about that for both <laughs> of you. But in reality, for the GOP base, the idea of teaching slavery as an upside uh, is consistent with white victimhood. And that is the currency of Donald Trump. And the idea of teaching black people suffered doesn't play well. Teaching that, hey, slavery was bad, but not as bad as you think. That plays well with the GOP base. That's what polling shows it. I'm not a Republican. I can't get in your mind. That's what polling shows them. All right. Since, since we're supposedly thinking so much like Democrats, so I want to say to you, Democrats, why can't you seem to get your act together when it comes to Joe Biden and Biden, Bidenomics? What, what is the problem that you seem to have in understanding what this man has done under very difficult uh, circumstances to generate the kind of growth in the economy and movement in the economy away from recession, away from the, the cliff of, of economic collapse onto something that a little bit more positive? You've got the Washington Post and others out here telling the story, and yet Democrats are sitting there going, I don't know, I think he's too old. Uh, uh, right, right, Brendan? It's like, with, yeah. what is, what's uh, up with these guys, oh, right? Him or me. Uh, <laughs> now, this uh, is for you, D. Go ahead. Reality, on my, on my show last night, my entire open was about Bidenomics and how it's working and how some of the corporate media, not you, Michael, I applaud you sincerely for covering it, sincerely. Many of the corporate media, so much as Trump sucks all the oxygen out, and it's because there's real news with Donald Trump. He needs just more charges. The Democrats have to get out there and talk about this. Unemployment, again, the lowest since the 1960s. Inflation, the lowest point in two years. Consumer confidence just hit a new two-year high this week. That's three months in a row. That's on the uptick. Gas prices down 25%. I agree with you 100%, Michael. Democrats should be getting out there and repeating the message over and over again. The problem is you have two Democrats and you hear three opinions on any issue. You can book one Democrat for both sides of the same issue because that's what Democrats do. We are not great at messaging. The GOP is much better at it. Democrats got to own the economy. It's a winning issue for 2024. 
Uh, Brendan, I'll give you the last word on this before we go to break. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it might be a winning issue, but I, you know, the stats you just cited are not all that encouraging. I mean, inflation is still really high. It may be lower than it was. And a two-year consumer confidence is not that long ago when things were really bad. But this is a risky play. And I don't think they're doing this because they're going on offense. I think they know they have a problem. They have a huge weakness and they're trying to fix it. Um, but they may have no choice but to try to lean into the economy because it's probably going to make or break this election. Um, so I, I understand why they're trying to get ahead of it. Uh, but there is a pretty easy target for Republicans still to be going after in the economy when inflation is still really high. It's, yeah, yeah, a little less yeah. bad than it was. All right, Dean and Brendan are going to stick around for a moment as we check in on tonight's big dinner for Republican presidential candidates in Iowa, where we don't expect anyone to bring up the fact that Trump lost the Iowa caucus to Ted Cruz because it might make him angry. Back in a sec. Okay, I know that it feels like we're still trudging through the 2020 election, but the 2024 presidential race is in full swing. And in Iowa tonight, the Republican Party is hosting its annual Lincoln dinner. Thirteen Republican presidential candidates are speaking tonight with former President Donald Trump headlining the event. Hmm. The last time Trump attended this event, businesswoman Carly Fiorina stole the show. And Trump was still just a former Democrat considering a run for the presidency. He went on to close the uh, to lose the Iowa caucus to Ted Cruz, Senator Ted Cruz. Yeah. But don't ask Trump that because about that, because he claims he won and Ted Cruz stole it from him. Sound familiar? Yeah, well, today Trump maintains a double-digit lead in Iowa polls with the party firmly in his grips and functioning as an extension of his legal defense fund. Back with me are Dean Obadala and Brendan Buck. And joining the conversation is Brian Fonnen-Steele, the chief politics reporter for the Des Moines Register. So, Brian, you're there. Uh, set the scene for us. Let us know what's happening here. I understand that uh, Ron DeSantis came out uh, just a moment ago and s declared there will be no cocaine in his White House and as well as um, uh, that he would enact the death penalty for pedophiles. I, I think these are all rousing uh, topics to talk about. What what are you hearing? That's exactly right. So Governor DeSantis is still speaking behind me, and he's getting a really enthusiastic reaction from the crowd tonight. He's only the third person to speak. As you mentioned, Donald Trump is the last speaker, so we'll see how this goes between now and then. But so far, he's really animating this crowd on some of those talking points that you've just mentioned. It, it's interesting to me, uh, Brianna, that uh, you have this cavalcade of, of candidates coming through, uh, but Donald Trump is the keynote. He's the one that everyone is sitting there waiting for. What is the vibe in anticipation of his speech tonight? Have you been able to get a sense from the audience that we, you know, we like some of these guys, but that's the main stage we're waiting for? That's exactly right. I mean, Donald Trump still is leading all of these national polls. And here in Iowa, he's still very much beloved by a lot of these Republicans. He's someone who has been in the state very regularly, even after he became president. He kept up ties here in this state. He's got deep roots with a lot of the organizations here. And so people are really looking to see whether or not he can hold on to that support in the face of new options. And so his speech tonight is a real test. It's the only uh, cattle call that he's a 
attending where all of these candidates are going to be in the same room on the same stage back to back. So it's going to be a real test of how he does compared directly to some of these other candidates. So, so Brennan, the, the challenge for those other candidates is they won't go where they need to go with Donald Trump. So my take on this event tonight is just really kind of warm up acts for Donald Trump's performance at the end. How are you looking at these types of events where they they get on these stages in front of the base and yet not take down the guy who's sitting 40, 50 points ahead of them in the polls? Yeah, you know, it's it's confounding. I mean, you don't get anything for coming in second. And that feels like a lot what a lot of people are playing for. Um, they're upset to, or they're they're unwilling to upset any Trump voters. And look, I get it. There are a lot of diehard Trump voters who if you criticize them, they're going to get upset. But by very definition, a diehard Trump voter is not a persuadable voter. They're not who you're going to be winning over. So you need to understand that if your goal is to win, um, you got to kind of write those people off. And one of the things that I find, you know, somewhat encouraging is Trump's leading by a lot, but he seems to have hit a bit of a ceiling. You know, he's in the low 50s and you as much as DeSantis has stumbled and nobody else has really taken off, it's not like Trump is now in the 60s or, or approaching 70s. It tells me there's still a lot of people who want an alternative. They want someone to be good other than Donald Trump. And if someone would just fill that space and understand that you can contrast yourself with this person, because I promise you, when he stands up there later tonight, he's not going to just you know dance around the other. Uh, he's probably going to take some swings. That's what he does. That's what Donald Trump does. And it's worked for him. So maybe they should learn a lesson from him a little bit. Yeah, I, but they won't. I, I, they just won't. I mean, they've had time to do to learn that lesson. I mean, school's been in for a while now on this. And yet, uh, Dean, we still see Republicans placating and and explaining and excusing Donald Trump when they have the opportunity, to Brendan's point, to really lay him bare and move on. I, I want to play for you uh, Ron DeSantis on the possibility as President DeSantis pardoning Donald Trump. Would you commit to pardoning him on any federal charges against him? Well, what I've said is very simple. Um, I'm going to do what's right for the country. I don't think it would be good for the country to have an almost 80-year-old former president go to prison. Um, so that's a yes. It doesn't seem like it would be a good thing. And I look at, like, you know, Ford uh, pardoned Nixon, took, took some heat for it. But at the end of the day, it's like, do we want to move forward as a country or do we want to be mired in these past controversies? So, Dean, how is that a, as a general election uh, message uh, <laughs> to the country uh, after going through what will probably be a very difficult uh, uh, primary and general election with Donald Trump? Well, first of all, I don't think Ron DeSantis will be making that. He has no shot at this nomination. He's gotten weaker, it seems, by the day. If Ron DeSantis wants to get some traction in the GOP, apparently, to get the base excited, he should commit some crimes. Maybe knock over a liquor store, you know, rob a bank. <laughs> Donald Trump has 74 felonies right now. Ron DeSantis says none. So Ron says go up, incite an attack on a neighboring state like Georgia, their capital. Maybe you'll get people. The idea of pardoning, like we're going to move on. Imagine that sentiment after 9-11. Oh, we'll just let Bin Laden. Let's just move on as a nation. We had a terrorist attack on our capital. January 6th was an act of domestic terrorism. That's what FBI Director Christopher Wray testified the attack was. And everybody involved in that attack has to be held accountable. We don't move on. We hold people accountable so it never happens again. That's an important point. Democrat, Republican, doesn't matter. If you're a president, if you attempt a coup, you incite a terrorist attack, you must go to prison. And I think you should spend your last days in prison 
not to be cruel, but to, as a message to anyone, even a Democratic demagogue in the future, you can't do this and get away with it because we believe in this Democratic Republic. And I wish Republicans would join in that. Let's protect our republic and move on and fight over policy. Brianne, we've got about uh, 20 seconds or so left. Tim Scott just got on the stage. Uh, how was the response to him? What has he said real quick uh, that's rousing the, the crowd there? Well, he is someone who um, really tends to play up his faith in, Amer in, in his life, and that really speaks to Iowa evangelicals. So I think we'll hear more of that tonight. All right. Dean Obadala, Brendan Buck, and Brianne Fonnen-Steele, thank you all very, very much. We'll be right back. And that's tonight's readout. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents... Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC.